Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of American History 2 in our A to Z podcast today, starring the letter T um, and also starring Malcolm Craig. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much, Mark. That's very kind of you. Uh, <laughs> yes, uh, brought to you today by the letter T. Let us kick off. What is our first selection from the mystical hat of letters? Goodness me, we're not messing about. No, we are not messing okay, about today. Let's go. Okay, dokes. I am going to start the timer. I was not prepared for you to leap in. So oh, well, there. you know, man of action. <laughs> 30 minutes beginning now. Okay, and this is one I think you're going to have a bit of an opinion on, Malcolm. Um, Harry Truman. And now, I kind of feel harsh on you hitting you with just Truman early doors, so I'm going to maybe narrow it down a wee bit for you. What is your take? Um, and I, I, I'm sure I brought this up in a previous podcast, but I want to revisit it again because it was far too long ago. What is your take on, like, sort of Truman's decision to drop the nuclear bomb and, and more like just how he felt about it personally do you have a sort of insight on that how did he did he manage to rationalize it to himself for the rest of his life being a pedant I'll start off by saying it's the atomic bomb not the nuclear bomb uh, nuclear bombs only come about in 1952 with the Ivy Mike test the first hydrogen bomb Regardless of that. Uh, so Truman uh, in public certainly had this air of, I made the right decision. It was the correct decision during a time of war. Uh, certainly he and his Secretary of War, Henry Stimson, you know, have this, this article comes out allegedly by Stimson, actually not, you know, written by James Conan and McGeorge Bundy and all that kind of thing, called The Decision to Drop the Atomic Bomb, appears in Harper's Magazine, kind of as a counterpoint to John Hersey's Hiroshima from the New Yorker a year earlier and and in it the case is made that this was done in amongst many of the other issues primarily to save American lives. The claim came from there that 500,000 American lives of Marines and soldiers and Air Force and Navy were saved by not having to invade the home islands of Japan. Uh, now that figure is completely untrue. Uh, it was kind of made up, it was plucked from, plucked from the air. All the Navy and Marine and Army assessments were much lower of what the casualties would be for an invasion of the home islands. Uh, but that in public, uh, Truman stood behind that claim. It was to save American lives, all that kind of thing. And he, he didn't really renege on his, his decision. Uh, now, it, saying it was his decision simplifies a very complex set of events. But in private, actually, if you look at Truman's uh, diaries and personal reminiscences, as a, as a man with a, a great investment in, in religion and the Bible, he was deeply conflicted uh, by this. So, for example, during the Korean War, there are calls to use the atomic bomb. And in private, Truman is like, I cannot do this again. I cannot incinerate you know, men, women and children, even if they are 
our enemies, allegedly, with this weapon. So, so in private, he had a fairly strong stance. He was the, the president that was there at the, the dawn of the American nuclear age. He oversaw the establishment of the United States Air Force as the striking, the atomic striking arm as the Cold War emerged. But in private, he was conflicted. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that's a really interesting take on a very serious issue. My favourite Truman story has always been the, the really angry letter that he sends to the music critic um, who was at his daughter's performance. Um, and I think I think it's during the time when Truman is becoming really unpopular, like, you know, Korea's going on, all, all sorts of, you know, uh, Soviet Union gets the bomb, all these sorts of things. And uh, there's some critic goes and watches his daughter perform and uh, says that she was basically a crap singer. Uh, if I remember, he also creepily says, she is extremely attractive, but, you know, not a very good singer. And Truman just, like, unloads on him with these really mad sort of insults. And my favourite of which is he calls him an eight-ulcer man with a four-ulcer pay. I'm sure that I'm sure that was a really a biting insult That's, in Independence, Missouri, back in the that day. Is, that, is, <laughs> that is a zinger. That is an absolute zinger. But it's true. I and mean, she, she wasn't a very good singer. Uh, but, you know, Truman, the one thing you didn't do was insult Truman's family. I mean, Truman was a family man. Family, uh, family and the Bible and all these things were really, really important to Harry Truman. Uh, I mean, the one thing that, you know, Truman is sometimes, it was portrayed at the time, and, and still I think some people have this opinion of him that he's a bit of an ill-educated hick from Missouri and all that kind of thing. And Truman was far from, he didn't have you know, a huge amount of formal education, but he read and read and read. I mean, he was self-educated. Uh, for example, kind of like you know, generals and everything were always incredibly impressed by his command of the details of maps and strategies and all of these kind of things, how he could you know, read maps and interpret maps and knew where things were and knew the history of the places where you know, at the end of World War Two, for example, conflict is taking place. So, not a formally educated man, but but self-educated and, and very knowledgeable, and could quote huge sections of the Bible off by heart, which is not an easy thing to do. I certainly can't do it. But anyway, I feel like we've boxed off Truman, so shall we move on to the next? Okay, we're going to pick from the, uh, the mystical and rather shabby hat uh, of things. Let's go for the 21st Amendment. Ah, the repeal of prohibition, um, basically otherwise known as the easiest win for FDR ever coming in. He could have came in as president, just repealed the 21st Amendment, left office and been declared the greatest president of all time. So, no, hang I mean, uh, Pro- prohibition, that was the 20th Amendment. No, prohibition the 20th, was the 18th, 18th Amendment. 18th Amendment, which was then followed by women's suffrage, which, which is, is the 19th. 19th. Yeah. Yeah, um, I, I always then, go, oh no, the 20th is uh, moving the start of the presidential term to January, isn't it? Exactly. Is it? Yeah, One of the most significant amendments yep. in, in history, which was basically brought in because everybody was like, wait a minute, we voted Herbert Hoover out of office in November and we have to wait until March? Yeah. Until we, yeah. Until well, we get a new I always get, other than the 19th Amendment, I always get kind of like slightly mixed up about which is which in these kind of later amendments to the Constitution. Yeah, they loved amending the Constitution, like sort of back in the progressive era type thing. They don't really do it anymore because they would never get enough votes to do it. So, um, But yeah, so I mean, the 21st Amendment is obviously prohibitions uh, repeal. Um and I, I think the one of the one of the sort of funny things that comes out of it is that it's actually said that it becomes harder to get a drink in New York after prohibition is repealed. 
because there were just so many illegal bars that obviously would have no restrictions on when you could go to them and when they would sell alcohol um, that you know you have literally had no restrictions as to when you could go and drink whereas after prohibition licensing hours came into play so you actually had to abide by more strict times of when you could consume alcohol um but yeah i think i think one of there's, there's there's so many great pictures of like people celebrating with drinks at, at when and i think one of the best ones is a uh, is al smith um and it was who you know the the democratic presidential candidate in 1928 the first catholic to ever um, have a major party nomination and who had been gubbed by Herbert Hoover in 1928 and one of his issues had good, been to good, try and... Good Scottish term there, gubbed. Yeah, yes. For indeed, our non-Scottish indeed. listeners, giving a right good thrashing, I think, is yeah. uh, a <laughs> good term. Um, and, and, and yeah, so, and, and basically they presented Al Smith with his pint, but underneath, I think it said something like, Al Smith's first legal pint in <laughs> 13 years or something like that. So very, yeah, very good. Twenty first, twenty first amendment. Well, I think, I think we'll finish up there. Cheers. Uh, hey, hey, okay. Oh, let's. We've, we've gone a slightly different direction here, Malcolm. Oh, Rosetta Thorpe. Ah, sister, Vos- sister Rosetta Tharp. Thorpe. Uh, one no. of the great figures of American music in the the nineteen nineteen thirties, forties, fifties, even into the the nineteen sixties. And in a field, particularly blues and kind of heavily influencing rock, where it was dominated by men, and she was, you know, sometimes after her heyday, as forgotten, but was just this gigantic influence, particularly on guitar style. I mean, she was one of the first people in the 1930s was using kind of like guitar distortion and all this kind of stuff, and was a huge influence on you know later figures like you know Eric Clapton, uh, for for example. Uh, have you have you ever seen the video of her? Like you know, where she's standing there with this big, like almost like Les Paul looking yeah, yeah, guitar yeah. in front of a choir, and she does look like you know. You said she's sister Rosetta Thorpe. Thorpe. Yeah, yeah. She sort of looks like a traditional sort of nun type figure standing there. It's, um, but it's, an ama- it's incredible. An amazing combination of this kind of like you know, new guitar sound. Her guitar playing technique. She's a great guitar player. A combination of blues and then gospel. And then kind of like moving into kind of like the era of kind of, you know, rock and roll and everything, you know, just such a, a hugely influential, a figure who should be remembered more alongside, you know, the American musicians that come out of the 20s and 30s. Like, you know, Robert Johnson is always cited as the, the kind of the creator of the Delta Blues and all this kind of stuff. But Sisters of Zeta Tharp should be right up there at the very top with all of them as one of the, the people who invented rock music. Yeah, I mean, does that, I, she's I, one of the people that invents rock music. Yeah, I mean, I'd recommend listeners to check out her the video of her doing "Down by the Riverside." Mm. It's quite, it's quite a sight to. Yeah, behold. yeah, 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 amazing performer. So yes, yeah, so is this? I'm glad. I'm glad she came up out of the hat. That's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Okay, uh, next up, what comes out of the hat? Oh, here's one. Ha ha ha! Maybe we can have some personal reminiscences here, Mark. <laughs> uh, T is for. Tupperware. Uh, how did I know that was where you were going? So, I mean, do we tell the full story behind Tupperware? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think we will. So, okay. you know, we're, we're, we're 2012, we're both in the middle of big research trips, and lo and behold, we both are going to the Gerald R. Ford Library. Um, in the in lo- lovely city of Ann Arbor, Michigan. Y- yeah, absolutely gorgeous. And so, obviously, we, you know, we decide to sh- share a place while we're there to cut costs. Um and I think it's fair to say we consumed a decent amount of alcohol on this trip. A drink was taken. You're nodding. Yes, a, a drink yeah. was taken, but we decided one night that we were going to not 
drink. I yes. think that, that, that was going to be the policy. I can't remember um, how we arrived at that decision. Uh, I, th- I think our livers felt tired. Yes, um, yes. And uh, so, obviously, we decided to take a, a, a break from drinking beer. But for some reason, we ended up getting Bacardi, I want to say. You bought a, bo- uh, a bottle uh, but, of Bacardi, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so we piled through an entire, well, not an entire bottle of Bacardi, but a good chunk of it, and watched the documentary Tupperware, um, which is, an, what was, admittedly hazy recollections, an incredible documentary on the American Experience series that PBS did, that were brilliant, and, and I'd urge people to seek out there. And it was all about how, in the 1950s, how women sort of made themselves into businesswomen by going out and selling Tupperware. Yep, um, and it was just this cultural history that showed, um, showed the development of it. And uh, any time it ever comes up now, it, it takes me back to the times we shared in Ann Arbor. Yep. Um, I mean, it was amazing. You could have like, invented by this guy Earl Tupper. I didn't know until you know, up until that time that it was actually named for the guy that invented it. Uh, but I mean, the documentary, as I recall, really uh, focused on Brownie Wise, who was the. She was the woman that really started the kind of the getting kind of like Tupperware parties really going and this direct marketing, you know, face-to-face selling strategy going. It was a hugely influential figure in American business at the time. But yeah, I remember being quite, quite drunk, but also being genuinely fascinated by the social and cultural history of Tupperware, something I had never thought about before. Yeah, and there, yeah, so there you go. Historians, always cool, in case you were wondering. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And you know it's that well you know it's that kind of that kind of thing you know that that every uh, historian who teaches in the university should know you are not the cool professor. No, <laughs> you are you not, never, and never ever. will be. <laughs> um, cool. Right, let's move on then. What's up okay. next? Okay. Okay, this sort of ties in a wee bit to the discussion of Truman earlier. Um, three Mile Island. Oh, the Three Mile Island incident in Pennsylvania. Uh, May 1979, as I... No, March 1979. Yeah. March 1979, as I recall, uh, where there was a a serious incident at the uh, Three Mile Island uh, nuclear plant. It initially started off due to a stuck valve uh, and the coolant draining out of the system. And this had a massive effect on anti-nuclear energy activism uh, in the United States. Uh, Three Mile Island reinvigorated uh, anti-nuclear energy activism and led to all sorts of activist groups like uh, Musicians United for Safe Energy, Muse, uh, which was created just after Three Mile Island. So figures like Jackson Brown, Bonnie Raitt, uh, Crosby, Stills and Nash, Bruce Springsteen, uh, all that kind of crowd got together and staged these concerts in Madison Square Garden uh, under the kind of like, you know, anti-nuclear energy, not anti-nuclear weapons activism, although it was related to that, but this was specifically focused on the question of nuclear power. So they had these uh, badges and logos, which was this kind of like smiling kind of orange sun against a yellow background that just said, nuclear power, no thanks, Uh, all that kind of thing. Because there had been a lot of talk in the 1970s about if there is going to be increased oil scarcity, do we move to a nuclear-based uh, system of energy production and all that kind of thing. And Three Mile Island is one of the things. The US nuclear energy industry had been declining in the 1970s anyway, and Three Mile Island is one of the things that just uh, you know increases that decline, makes yeah. it decline and the building of new nuclear power plants and everything. Was there not a quite sort of, well, I wouldn't say funny thing because obviously 
there's a lot of discussion over how the health effects of Three Mile Island, you know, like there's a lot of local residents that still claim it's led to increased cancer rates and everything, um, though that's sort of disputed. But was there not a film that was released not long before Three Mile Island called The China Syndrome? Yes. Starring, starring Jane Fonda, because Jane Fonda just loved to be in anything that was controversial in the 1970s. Well, she's still, still is a prominent <laughs> yeah, activist. Uh, indeed, indeed. And, 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 but in the film, she they there is a nuclear accident almost of the sort of Three Mile Island and they were really attacked for like you know for you know because basically nuclear people tried to say at the time like Edward Teller and everything tried to say no no nuclear power isn't completely safe completely safe nothing could go wrong and in the film they showed something going wrong yes uh, and then and then they got a backlash to it and then Three Mile Island happens like literally a couple of months later or something like that yeah I mean there's a, there's a number of films at this time that kind of like are not looking at nuclear war but looking at the nuclear industry so you get you know the China Syndrome uh, as part of that Silkwood uh, starring uh, Meryl Streep uh, so yeah so there is a kind of an emphasis uh, on this kind of thing and yeah I mean the nuclear industry is worried you know is genuinely worried you know there's all this stuff about kind of you know whistleblowers within the the nuclear industry which is what uh, you know Silkwood is about it's about a real person Karen Silkwood uh, so yeah uh, there's a lot of concern and there's films appearing on the kind of the on the big screen you know showing that maybe nuclear energy is perhaps not the safest thing in the world Who'd have thunk it? Who'd have thunk it? Yeah. The mighty atom, eh? Right, move on. So that's uh, Three Mile Island. Uh, what do we move on to? Let us reach into the hat and now bring out... Oh, Alexis de Tocqueville. Alexis de Tocqueville. Um, I have just all... Right, so I mean, obviously neither of us are scholars of the 19th century. I mean, we, we have taught it extensively on American history survey courses. And one of the things when you teach in the 18th century is this guy just seems to crop up as like an authority on everything. Like a French aristocrat. He was the Viscount, you know, Alexis de Tocqueville. Viscount. Viscount, sorry. I knew I wasn't pronouncing that right. Um, and I, I, I've just always found it's kind of bizarre how he gets so much credence. Although in saying that, when I have used his work in lectures, he, 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 was, good. he, was, he was a good writer. I'll give him that. Well, I mean, yeah, a good, a good observer. I mean, he, he, he has this great quote that I love to use about. I think he talks about you know crossing from Ohio into Kentucky, and you know you sort of crossing from from the east bank of the Ohio side over to the the west and Kentucky from a free state into a slave state, and just how on the on the sort of Ohio side everything is activity. It's a hub. It's industry. It's you know human beings trying to make the best of themselves. And then into you go into Kentucky and the the slavery and just the depressing state of affairs and seeing and he has some sort of line that you know man is not made for servitude. So I mean he he clearly he clearly was you know a prescient observer of things going on. But I've just always found it quite interesting as to why he's given such you know adherence by 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 scholars because, because he wrote well, I mean one of the I mean he's one of his major mm-hmm. works is his two volume democracy in america so in published between 1835 and 1840 and it's one of the first real sustained historical and political analyses of of the united states and particularly kind of like society and politics and all that kind of thing and there's a good argument to be made and many people do make this argument that de tocqueville is one of the 
the originators of the discipline of political science, that he's actually trying to look at politics, particularly in the United States, in a in a systematic scientific way. But he's also a historian as well. He's interested very much in the history of the United States. He's fascinated by it. This country absolutely fascinates him. Uh, but he's, he's such a, you know, almost this renaissance man, to use the term. He's, you know, a historian, he's a political scientist, he's an observer of affairs, he's a writer, but he also is a diplomat as well. I mean, for five, I think it's five months in 1949, he's the French Minister of Foreign Affairs, <laughs> very, very briefly. Uh, so he's, he has such wide-ranging interests, but I think it's democracy in America, I think, is one of the reasons why scholars still look back to de Tocqueville when looking at the United States in the 19th century and what people thought of it. Okay, you convinced me. You know, it's worth looking at de Tocqueville. Um, so, we'll, so we'll move on there. That served a good purpose. Okay, and into the hat we go. Tobacco. Tobacco. Huh. There we go. That was not not one I was, I was thinking was going to come out of the hat today. So as a, as a former smoker... Uh, I can attest to the incredibly addictive qualities of tobacco. Nicotine into is is incredibly addictive, and tobacco obviously originates from the colonization of the United States. Uh, I mean, it was one of the original you know crops that that came from there. Uh, you know, and vast numbers of indentured servants and then slaves end up going over there to tend to the tobacco farms, the indigo farms, the rice farms, and all of these kind of things before cotton becomes a huge thing. I mean, this is one of the things I think when we are teaching, is we talk about the kind of the the pre-cotton era. You know, students, you know, coming to American history think, oh, cotton, that's what's associated with slavery. But prior to that, you have you know tobacco, you have rice, you have indigo as the as the major things. But you know the the power of the tobacco lobby. So switching into the twentieth and twenty first centuries, you know the power of the tobacco lobby in the twentieth century. You see these all these adverts from the nineteen fifties, like eight out of ten doctors smoke Chesterfields. You know they will you know clear your T zone and all these kind of things. The ridiculous claims that were made for to, for tobacco, and we now know exactly how damaging smoking is, but. You know, mid twentieth century or early twentieth century, even into the late twentieth century, these you know, eight out of ten doctors smoke Chesterfields. Right, fair enough. That shows that doctors are just as susceptible to this nonsense as the rest of us. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, it's the adverts I've always found fascinating. Yeah. From like the the early to the mid twentieth century, just uh, like the promotion and getting doctors on board, and uh, I say. yeah, and it's amazing change now. I think the the proportion of Americans that now smoke. I think the last note is down to 14%. I think it is, which, you know, I, I'm not sure what it was back in the 50s, but I'm sure it was a hell of a lot higher that than than 14%. And I think there's a new book that's came out of it that is on my reading list that I want to read, uh, Sarah Millow's book yes. on, on tobacco, political history. Yes. Um, so that that's on my reading list because I find it fascinating that I, I think tobacco is an issue in terms of, doing getting the government to do anything about it probably was not maybe quite as far hard, was viewed as as hard to do as maybe like guns is just now but it wouldn't have been far off because it was such a huge lo- huge lobby so many million people were like well you can't take away my cigarettes and stuff like that so for people who who want to see gun reform in the United States you know there might you know that like looking at how politics around tobacco have changed might well be you know a point of hope yeah I, I was just to say it's it's called the cigarette a political history that's by it, Sarah yes. Milov 
Yeah, uh, not not tobacco. But yeah, that's that's a book that's on my reading list. The cover of it is brilliant. Uh-huh. You know, it's, I mean, yeah. it's done in the style of the old, the classical Marlboro uh, packet. Yeah, that that's definitely on my reading list. Absolutely want to. It sounds like a fascinating study. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. How much time do we have left? We have seven minutes and twenty three seconds. Oh. Use them wisely. Good God! Right. Uh, so we've gone through uh, tobacco. What comes out of the uh, the hat now? Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Okay, so I'm, I don't want to like go into some... This is going to be a quick one. I don't want to go into some great historical perspective on Thanksgiving. I will just say it's a good time to have American friends. Like I'd never had a Thanksgiving feast until I was a PhD student at the University of Edinburgh, where we were surrounded by Americans. Mm. Uh, many friends who were Americans, and uh, at Thanksgiving, they would put on a feast, and it would be incredible. Um, so that is all I'm going to say. I know that feeling. Like my uh, good friend from uh, Georgia, Brian Marshall, who studied. Hello, Brian, if you're listening. Uh, who studied in Edinburgh? Uh, very, very talented individual, and he hosted the first uh, Thanksgiving dinner I was at in Edinburgh. And the sheer quantity of food and the spread and all these things I'd never had before it was like amazing. Uh, but I mean, Thanksgiving, as far as I'm aware, gets formalised as an occasion by Abraham Lincoln in 1863 in the midst of the Civil War. I didn't know that. That's, so it's not, it, it takes place, but there's no kind of, this is an official thing. I think it's Lincoln that formalises it. Interesting, Thomas Jefferson did not celebrate Thanksgiving. There we go. Uh, you know, so, uh, yes, Thanksgiving. Okay, next out of the hat. Let's yeah. use our time wisely. Okay, this one gives you a wee bit of flexibility to go where you want with it. Treaty of... Your choice. Oh, God, which which treaty? Uh, okay, so I'm going to say the uh, the 1957 Treaty of Rome that creates the European Economic Community, uh, which becomes the European Community, which then becomes the modern-day European Union. Okay, so this is American History Podcast. Now let's see okay. how you're relating this. So, in the mid-1950s, Britain stands outside of, he'll be shocked to learn, Britain stands outside of the emerging European integration, the European coal and steel community, uh, all of these kind of things. But there are talks in in Europe over greater uh, economic integration at this point in time. And this leads up to the 1957 Treaty of Rome, which creates the EEC. But in about 1955, the the British government, the Churchill government, is kind of like, which leads into the, the Eden administration as well, uh, are sitting there going, hang on a minute. We've been kind of like this benevolent, okay, we're going to do nothing. We're going to quietly maybe support bits of this. And then they suddenly realise, oh, we don't actually want this. So start actually trying to sabotage these moves towards uh, greater European integration. Now, what stops them doing that is the Eisenhower administration, and this is where we turn to American history, the Eisenhower administration comes in and says, absolutely not, you are going to stop this right now. Uh, because we see great value in greater European integration, not just from the economic part, point of view, but as demonstrating the increased cohesiveness of this flexible term, the West, in the face of the Cold War, in the face of the Soviet and Eastern European threat, the integration of Germany in particular, in, with increasing tightness into European systems so to prevent another war, started by Germany, which was still a fear at this point. Uh, So the United States says to the British government, absolutely not, you're going to stop this right now because we support the creation of uh, a more integrated Europe, which leads to the 1957 Treaty of Rome. 
Oh, so there you go. Uh, a sort of sign that Imperial Britain was gone and we could now be bullied about by, by the Americans, as would be seen with the Suez Crisis. Um, I just want to give a quick shout-out to the Treaty of Versailles um, for two reasons. One, Woodrow Wilson arrives, everyone thinks he's a hero. By the time he's left, everyone thinks he's a prat. Yes. And, uh, you know, and therefore has a good read on him. Um, and also, I've always wondered about all these Versailles treaties because there is a lot of treaties that happen in Versailles. When I was being taught early Europe, early modern European history, and Louis the Fourteenth, I believe it is, that creates Versailles, gets it built for himself. Um, I think he didn't build it with toilets, like because he didn't care about the staff having to pee or anything like that. So I've always wondered: have they since installed toilets at Versailles, or were there like porta cabins outside? I, I don't. That is to- <laughs> I don't remember. I was I was last at Versailles. I think it was ten years old. I can't remember, but yeah. Yeah. But the treaty, there, you, there you go. The fascinating thing about the Treaty of Versailles, just a small concluding comment, is the the way that representatives of the colonised world attempt to try and get in touch with Wilson and get him to do something about imperialism and colonialism. So figures like uh, Noyen Aycock, who becomes Ho Chi Minh uh, when he changes his name for the umpteenth time, are trying to petition uh, Wilson, who's a massive racist, let's face it, we all know this, uh, who doesn't really care about the colonised world, and they're trying to say, what about us, all this freedom and self-determination and everything, and they get absolutely nowhere. Uh, so it's one of the interesting you know, uh, you know, know, features of Versailles is the attempts by the colonised peoples to, to gain independence and freedom and getting absolutely nowhere because they just don't care. Yep, yep. Okay. Uh, is it my choice now? It is indeed. Okay, Tulsa. Okay. Well, I mean, I think I think you can only really talk about Tulsa. You know, the Springs to me is an eighteen one twenty one massacre that happens there, um, where I think it's over three hundred African. It's over three hundred people are yeah, killed. Yeah. Is it, I don't think they're all African American. But I think the, the vast the vast majority, the vast majority are African American. Yeah, uh, and um. And it basically starts where, because African-Americans had actually built themselves a sort of prosperous neighbourhood, you know, they had sort of taken segregation literally and gone, okay, so you want to be separate, but equal, well, cool, we'll build our own shops, our own banks, our own things. It becomes known as this sort of a black Wall Street in yep. the area of Greenwood. Um, and then there is an incident um, involving um, a black man and a white woman um, where they're in an elevator together. The white woman accuses the black man of trying to rape her, I believe. Um, but then there isn't a pressing of charges, which riles up the white folks. Then there's a scuffle at one point between a white man and a, with a gun and then a black man who manages to turn the gun on the white man and kill him. And that lets loose the Tul- Tulsa massacre. At which point, um, as we've discussed in other podcasts, you end up with planes literally dropping bombs on the black area um, of Tulsa. And that's one of the um, amazing things. The Their desire to kill is so much that they get aircraft and drop explosives on the African-American the early days of, of aircraft. Town. I know. You know. I mean, it's just, it's insane. It's like, just, oh, yeah. And it's something, you know, you hear these, we talked about before about the, the concept of a, in the last episode on uh, Lyndon Johnson, about the concept of a race riot. And this, you know, sometimes Tulsa has talked about race. It wasn't. It was a, it was a violent massacre of African Americans. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. If you're going to mention Tulsa, 1921. Yeah. So we have time for one last um, 
win last one out the hat here. So okay, I'm gonna. I'm glad I've got <laughs> that you got this because I have no idea where I was gonna go with this. Targ and Putthoff. Oh right. <laughs> I'm surprised this came out, actually. So, Russell Targ and his partner in... Wait, 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 wait. wait. Before you go, you do know that every single thing we have in here has an equal chance of coming out. Yeah, I know. know, (laughs) I'm aware of... I am aware of probability, yes. But you just think, oh, this might not come up. So, Russell Targ and Harold Puthoff were a couple of scientists, uh, physicists primarily. Uh, But they became interested in parapsychology and joined what was called the Stanford Research Institute in the early 1970s. Now, Pothoff is one of the people who coined the term, well, he really coined the term remote viewing. So we can essentially use psychics to see into other places in the world thousands of miles away. Uh, and this was seen as a something to be taken seriously by some people, by some people. In the atmosphere of the Cold War, for example, you know, the CIA and other intelligence agencies, we will look at any possible way to be able to look into the Soviet Union, to be able to look into Soviet secret installations. So they ended up, there was a certain amount of uh, funding uh, from the CIA. I think the CIA gave them a bit. It was in the tens of thousands of dollars. It wasn't millions uh, to work on remote viewing of using kind of uh, psychic powers to look into the Soviet Union and Targ and Pothoff were the two main people behind that. I think it was called Project Stargate, as far as I'm aware. Do you know, do you know that this is, that's worked really well that that's the last one out the hack because it sort of feels like, you know, at the end of every newscast, there's like a little bizarre story so that you don't go away thinking about the horrible stuff that happened oh. in the headlines. That's can what I, I, feel, can I just feels add, like that. Uh, there's a brilliant thing I found in the Carter Library in Atlanta. And it was a daily report from National Security Advisor Spignev Brzezinski to Jimmy Carter. And one of the items on it was a bit about remote viewing, about this remote viewing project with Targ and Pothoff. And Brzezinski was slightly dismissive, but said, look, let's not ignore this entirely. And thinking, but this is about psychic powers and all that kind of thing. Uh, and Jimmy Carter just writes, has got a little note at the side of it, like you know, saying, oh, I thought this was arriving tomorrow. <laughs> Which I thought was like good. Hey, yeah, Carter was man of wit, brilliant. Uh, so anyway, yeah, that's that's Targan Pothoff and remote viewing. Some of these crazy ideas that came out during the Cold sure. War. Yeah, and that right. is also the letter T. We hope you, we hope you enjoyed. Yeah. See you again in brilliant. A Goodbye. Bye bye.